So, what do we believe as a church? Three things. We believe there's hope beyond our brokenness. That's really good news because there's not one person in this room that's not broken. And I got some sad news. There's not one person in the room that hasn't contributed to the brokenness of others. Are you with me? And so there is hope. Because of the life, death, resurrection, and the promise of the Spirit, there's hope. We have hope because of Jesus. And as we learn to trust him, the risen Jesus, in more and more areas of our lives, with more and more parts of our lives, like John, like Brandy, we just keep saying yes in different areas of our life, we, we become more and more whole. And as we become more and whole, he says, please join me in my restoration work in a very broken and, and, and more secular central coast than you may know. And so we have the opportunity to participate with Jesus in a broken world to bring restoration. That's what our church is about. Hope, trust, restoration. And we just want to invite you, if you're a guest, to join us in that journey. There's room for you here. So last month, we celebrated our 40th anniversary with a trip to Norway. And on one of our final days there, we decided to take a boat out to an island because there are thousands of puffin birds there, and we think puffins are the coolest birds on the planet. We showed up to the dock, and I gasped. I didn't realize Kathy had reserved this tiny speedboat. <laughs> Seven horsepower, took us 80 miles an hour over the open ocean, there and back. By the way, as we're waiting to get on, another family was just returning, and it was a bunch of teenage kids, and they went, dude, that was like riding a roller coaster on the ocean. And I said, that was not helpful information. I did not need to hear that. I'm comfortable on solid ground. But good news, we survived, and we're here. And after the ride, we laughed as we thought, this is a picture of marriage. It's been quite a 40-year ride. <laughs> and you know what's kept us in the same boat all these years has been the grace of God. And just saying, I do, over and over again. You know, intimacy is not the absence of pain. It's not the absence of disappointment or adversity. Intim intimacy is the product of staying committed and vulnerable in a relationship in the face of those realities. Are you with me there? That's what intimacy is. So it is with our relationship with the Lord Jesus. So he chooses us, and we respond by saying, I do. And then over and over again, just like John, just like Brandy, we say, I do, again and again. And that's today's theme, is this abiding in our I do, abiding in his promise to us. And so this morning, it's going to be a little different than any other sermon. Maybe you've heard from me, at least, is we're going to camp in just one verse and really spend time in it. And we're going to memorize it right now. So the verse is this. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him in John 8, 31, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
Now it's your turn. Next slide. If you, in my, you are truly my, and you will, the, and the, will, give yourself a hand. Next. If you, in my, you, hold it. We're going off the rails. Are truly, and you will know the, and the, will. We got that last part good. Next. Ready? If you abide in my, you are truly, and you will, and the, yes! You just memorized John 8, 31 and 32. Now let's continue. This is uh, the rest of that chapter a little bit. They answered him. These are the, the Judeans who had believed in him. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no home in you. I speak of what I've seen from my father and you do what you've heard from your father. And if you read on, this leads to an escalating conflict like no other conflict in the entire New Testament, ending in their picking up stones to stone him. Lord Jesus, we need you now. We actually choose to do this verse right now. We choose to abide in your word. Set us free from all distractions. We bind up everything that is opposed to the Lord Jesus in this room and in our hearts. Open our hearts and make them tender to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're going to take a deep dive into these 24 words of Jesus. If you abide in my word, if you dwell in my word, and word there is logos, the beautiful word that's used in John 1, which says, in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos is God. And 1.14 says, and the logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is a huge word in John. The Logos is the second person of, of the Trinity who dwelled eternally with the Father and the Spirit. He was there in creation bringing order out of chaos. He became fully human, made like us, and made his home among us, displaying the Father's glory, his steadfast love, his faithfulness. And he was, showed his glory, ironically, mostly, 
most climactically by being lifted up on a cross and by absorbing into himself the full power of sin, death, and evil on our behalf. Is that good news? The Logos is the living word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his story, capital S. So if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. What does it mean to abide? Some translations say remain in my word. If you continue in my word, if you dwell, if you hold to my word. But my favorite is if you make your home in my word. You see, it takes time to make a house a home. A house is not the same thing as a home. We moved in just about a year ago to the central coast, thanks be to God. I mean, friends, there are so many people that can't afford to live where you live. It's becoming less and less viable for so many. First thing we had to do in making it our own is we had to get rid of a lot of stuff from our former home to fit into that home. And then over this past year, this is, house has become more and more our home. It's become a place of refuge, a place of rest, a place of relationship, a place of nourishment. We love to invite others over into our home for waffles and other things. And so it is with God's word. Jesus is calling us to make our home in his word and then invite others to do the same. Are you with me? Make our home. And so what does it mean? To make our home in a word, in his word. And what keeps us from abiding in his word? Well, there are many things. We could have a list and spend an hour, right? That are competing for attention today. And I would suggest more than ever in all human history. You see, the world has radically changed in the last 15 years. We have experienced a digital revolution. Now, this has come with blessings and curses. Now, how cool is Google Maps? I would take this thing just for Google Maps. I mean, I've always loved maps. And now I can go down and get a street view of every place we were going on in Norway. It was just mind-blowing. And Uber, I mean, you know, how many times have you been rescued by Uber? Or my Bible in One Year app that leads me through the New Testament this year or my beloved podcast, I could go on. However, a growing number of warning flags are being raised from experts across the spectrum. There's an increasing concern on how our screens are shaping our minds, our relationships, our habits, our politics. They were supposed to connect us across, but what they're doing is tribalizing us. And one example that, that is, is one of my greatest concern is, is it's transforming our ability to focus. Listen to this. Research is showing that digital dependency has reduced our attention span to a mere eight seconds. So my sermon is dead now. <laughs> I mean, I've lost you like, I don't know, 10 minutes ago. Eight seconds. Eight seconds. We now live in what economists call the, the attention economy. And there's so much research. Uh, I found this book really interesting. The Attention Merchants, the epic battle to get into our heads. 
You see this? Giant tech companies are spending millions and millions of dollars in tracking your data and de developing complex algorithms to shape your online habits. So you click on particular ads and sites that are tailor-made to fulfill your every desire. But their real goal is not about you. It's about getting you addicted to those clicks so that they make more money. Are you with me? And we are just pawns of these impersonal algorithms. They are the new pharaohs of our culture. And we need a new exodus. Amen? <laughs> if you work in the tech sector, forgive this sermon. Everyone is being discipled by something in our culture. Jesus said, whatever I abide in, whatever I make my home in, that's what is discipling me. So if I abide in my screen, my screen is discipling me. Am I meddling? Whether it be a small screen or a big screen. This new epidemic of distraction is robbing us of the core human ability to be present in our embodied everyday life. In relationship with creation, with one another, and especially with the God who is pursuing us. So how do we abide in God's word in this profoundly distracted culture? I believe the battle is an ancient, you know, it starts with an ancient solution. I invite you to try an experiment. experiment. Try a screen Sabbath. For a block of time on Sundays, and you may have to start with an hour and just expand on it each week, Turn off your screens and use the time you would have devoted, it's getting quiet in here, <laughs> to pay attention to the health of your soul, to marinate on the word you just heard that morning and, and what difference it makes in your life, to pray it into your week, to slow down and notice and delight in the simple gifts of God and creation and relationships in the arts, and literature, and music, and food, and hobbies, and in glorious, undistracted naps. <laughs> See, you will want to expand this time. I believe you will. See, Sabbath, as modeled by Jesus, is a profoundly liberating practice. It's actually very subversive in a beautiful way. In Sabbath, we're declaring that the culture's idols and our own compulsions do not define us. We can win the battle for our attention also by having a mini Sabbath at the beginning of the day. How many of you reach for your phone first in the morning with your first breath? I want to invite you to claim a 30-minute Sabbath at the beginning of your day for Jesus. Instead of turning to this, now I know some of you turn to Scripture on this, okay? But going right to that scripture is important. When you wake up, and for me, i got to get the coffee first. Anybody say amen on that one? Yeah. Woo! Slow roasted, slow roasted morning fog, man. Helps my quiet time. So just try this experiment. Say no to a screen, and instead open the scriptures. And just, you don't have to take a lot of time, but just open the scriptures and then pray that scripture into your day, into your work. 
into the ordinary life that's in front of you, into the hard things and the happy things that are about to happen, and, and the ordinary responsibilities and the conflicts and the challenges. Just pray that scripture into your day. Take the first 30 minutes and declare a screen Sabbath. And here what I think I'm finding is the key. You've got to circle back at the end of the day. And I'm only learning this. I, I used to have the greatest quiet times in the morning in the world. And by noon, I forgot completely about that experience. And I was defaulting to my own self-running of my life. And so this circling back is, is what, what has been called a prayer of examine or a daily examine. More than 400 years ago, St. Ignatius of, of Loyola encouraged prayer-filled mindfulness by proposing what has been called the daily examine. The examine is a process of prayerful reflection on the events of the day in order to detect God's presence and discern his direction. And I summarized this prayer using an acronym TLC to help us remember. And so we're taking the last 30 minutes of our day and instead of just starting the day with God, we want to also end with him. And first, we want to thank him where we had glimpse of his presence over that past day. This is really powerful because you start seeing where he showed up. And the simple gifts of that day, where he's worked, where he provided, where he forgave, where he healed, just Really ordinary stuff, like a conversation. Yesterday I was, I was just thanking God at the end of the day for a sweet conversation that I had with someone that really blessed me. L is lament the sorrows. Take time to lament the pain of the day. Lament the disappointments and losses. Of, if you're human, you're going to have laments. Amen. And Scripture gives us a whole genre in the Psalms of lament. Seventy Psalms are lament Psalms. That's where you face the pain, and you grieve over it, and you face what was hard about the day, the disappointments, the hurts, and you just lament. It's, lament is a gift of God. And then C is confess my failures, because every day I ignore the Lord at different times, and I'm sorry, Lord, where I ignored your presence, and I missed opportunities to be a blessing to my wife, to my stranger, to my neighbor, to my enemy, I, I, where I missed the opportunity to speak the truth in love or exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in my relationships or handle conflict with integrity. Lord, have mercy on me. Before I go to bed, I want to live under your cross. And you know what happens when you pray this prayer of examine? The next day, you get up, you pray the scripture in your day, and you are on the hunt more and more for where God is active in your day. Because you know at the end of the day, you're going to be doing an examine. And then when we come together for our Sabbath, man, we are just pumped because we've been watching God all through the week. Are you guys with me? This is what it means to abide. Sabbath. Praying scripture and the daily examine are time-tested practices that have helped the people of God for generations abide in Jesus 
How much more in this age of digital distraction do we need to take up these practices? More than ever in all human history do we need to learn from those who've gone before us. Back to John 8.31. Say it with me. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So what is a disciple? According to Jesus, a disciple is best understood as an apprentice. An apprentice is different than a student. You see, a student learns a teacher's ideas, an apprentice learns a teacher's craft. And in Jesus' case, his desires, his attitudes, his priorities, his practices. When we become an apprentice of Jesus, we are learning to desire what Jesus desires. We're learning to prioritize what Jesus prioritizes. We're learning to love what Jesus loves because you are what you love. And so that's what an apprentice is. It's not simply studying a teacher's information. It's studying and walking with him. And we here at Coastal Community Church define a disciple this way. Would you say it with me? One who is intent. A disciple is one who walks intentionally with God, choosing to be changed by Jesus, choosing to seek Jesus first, and choosing to join Jesus in his work. Now, according to Jesus, everyone who's called to salvation is called to discipleship. Listen to these sober words from my mentor, Dallas Willard. The greatest issue facing the world today. Now, that's a bold statement for any author. With all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who are defined or self-identified as Christians will become disciples. That's the greatest need of the world today, that they would become students, apprentices, and practitioners of Jesus Christ steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. This is the greatest need of the five cities today. This is the greatest need of Slow County today. This is the greatest need of your neighborhood today. This is the greatest need of your workplace today, that we would live as disciples. And so Jesus again said, if you abide in my word, you're truly my, and you will what? What does it mean to know something? When I was growing up, I got pretty good grades because I had this amazing ability to cram my head full of facts and then offload them for tests and then forget everything. But I did pretty good in school. But knowledge is so much more than a data dump. And the digital revolution has seduced us into believing that we know something if we can Google it or Alexa it, or Siri it. But you can't Google wisdom. Amen? Biblical knowledge is a relational word. Over and over and again in the scriptures, they declare the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, and the beginning of, of knowledge. So wisdom is the product of, a, of living worshipfully in a covenant relationship with God over time, often in the face of adversity. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is the kind of knowing that is experienced in a long-term healthy marriage. You cannot know someone without being committed to them. 
and them being committed to you. You cannot know the truth without being committed to the truth. You cannot know Jesus without being committed to Jesus. And here's the good news. He's even more committed to you and making himself known to you. So if you abide in my word, you are truly my, and you will know the truth. What in the world is the truth? In our culture, truth is seen as just the power of one group over another. It's true to you and what's true to me. But truth is so much more than that. Jesus speaks of truth as what he's seen in the Father's presence. Truth, according to Jesus, is reality. Truth, from God's perspective, is reality about who God is, what God has done, what God is doing, what the world is, who we are. Truth about me and truth about you. And biblical truth is not primarily a set of propositions. It's a story. It's a story that finds its climax in a person. The word became flesh and made his what? His dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and And so truth is personal, not just propositional in the Bible. Are you with me here? So the most common genre in the Bible the literary style that covers more pages of your Bible than any other literary style is narrative. Exodus, gospel, acts, kings. Truth is the single, united, epic story of Scripture that leads to Jesus. Truth is history, H-I-S, story. You with me there? A little pun there, his story. This is the only story that's large enough, true enough, redemptive enough, and honest enough to make sense of our world. And it's the only story that makes sense of my world and yours. We need to learn to read Scripture as a single grand narrative to grasp this story. This is why I invite people every year to join me in and reading through a large portion of Scripture. I'm listening through the New Testament this year. And as you find yourself in that grand story, you begin, you're less likely to take Scripture out of context and just use it for your own agenda. If we don't make our home in God's story, we will be captive to our own story. As human beings, we make sense of our lives, our families, our nations, and our cultures through stories. We are constantly writing narratives in our heads. The problem is that these narratives don't always correspond to reality. We have selective memories. <laughs> Think about family stories that your family tells. We embellish things and leave out things, and we omit inconvenient truths in our stories. We do that same in our national and ethnic stories, don't we? The stories we tell ourselves can actually keep us in bondage. And they sadly can keep others in bondage. Think about the Aryan nation story and how that story enslaves so many. Stories are powerful. If you abide in my word, Jesus says, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth, the grand story, and that story will... There's only one story that can set us free. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, we constantly hear this statement, I am the Lord who brought you out. Whenever he identifies himself, 
He also says, who brought you out of Egypt? God's constantly revealing himself as the God of liberation. So let's return to a pivotal moment way back in that grand biblical story in Exodus 3, where God calls a fugitive murderer who's shepherding sheep in the Sinai desert. His name is Moses. The Lord says, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I've seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. It had to be like Norway. <laughs> so now, now, up to that point, Moses really agreed with God. And then he said, so now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people to Israel. But Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And then it continues on the slide, John. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites. Now he's, he's bargaining, trying to get out of this job. And say, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? Then I shall tell them, what? God said to Moses, say it with me. I am who I am. The transliteration in Hebrew is Yahweh. Can you say that with me? Yahweh. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. You see, Yahweh, I am, is the sacred name for the liberating covenant God of Israel. Wherever you see the name Lord in caps in the Old Testament, it's Yahweh, I am. So let's fast forward 1,500 years to Jesus in this debate he's having with these uh, Judeans who had believed in him. And the debate has really escalated. And they say and retort, Abraham died, yet you say whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. They said, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said, truly, truly, I tell you. Say it with me. Before Abraham was born, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him. Now, they wouldn't have picked up stones if he said, you know, I'm a wise religious teacher. They would have been just fine with that. These professing believers picked up stones because Jesus was putting himself in the center of their story, a story that they had carefully crafted to keep themselves in the center. He was disrupting their whole story. He tends to do that in our lives too, amen? Like many today, they had room for a Jesus who was a wise religious teacher, but not for a Jesus who claimed equality with Yahweh, the liberating covenant God. But this is really good news because if Jesus is the same as Yahweh, he can 
set us free. Because Yahweh is the name for the liberating, covenant-making God of Israel. And if we are free, if the Son sets us free, we are Amen. Challenge of John 8. I want to just get down to one of my favorite commentators, Dale Bruner, said he, he thinks this is the most disturbing chapter in all the Gospels. Why? Because Jesus is not talking to outsiders. He's not talking to the Pharisees. He's not talking to his enemies, the scribes, the power elite in the temple, the Sadducees. He is speaking here to professing believers. You see, they were fans of Jesus, but not followers of Jesus. And I believe Jesus' words here in John 8 are a challenge to all of us who profess to be Christians in America today. We have a lot of fans of Jesus in America today, not a lot of followers. If the truth is to set us free, Oh, by the way, Dale Bruner said this. He said, professing believers who do not think they need discipleship under Jesus are in the greatest bondage of all because they are inoculated from the truth. They think they've gotten it when they haven't. And so, if the truth is to set us free, it needs to go deep into the very roots of our souls. Amen? Does this picture seem familiar to you if you've been here around coastal and has, has really trained us in this model of finding freedom in Christ you and I are like a tree the fruit represents our actions you know our relational behaviors and the leaves represent our emotions mad sad glad guilt shame fear all those emotions. And the branches have to do with our physical embodied lives, our bodies. The trunk, our thought patterns, our ruminations, the scripts we have been written for us and we write for ourselves, the stories we write. But the roots, what are the roots? Underground. There are core beliefs about who God is and who we are, what the world is, these are the core beliefs. And we cannot change by merely trying to change the visible fruit, like finding a nice shiny apple and clipping it on <laughs> to a branch, like we sometimes do, behavior modification. We can't change by just uh, trying to change the visible stuff, the fruit, the leaves. If I can just get myself to feel better, I will be better. If we are to be free, we must let the truth of Jesus work its way all the way down through the trunk and sink into each of us, into every one of our roots. If we're to be free, we must abide in the truth, in the core of our souls. Amen? Way down into every poisonous root. And we can't do this alone. All the yous in John 8 are plural. We miss this in English because there's only one part of the country where you have a second person plural. And it's in the south. So to literally translate this accurately, according to the Greek, it would be this. If y'all abide in my word, say it with me, y'all are truly my disciples, and y'all will know the truth, and when the truth will set y'all free. 
Friends, we can't live this free life in isolation. We were never meant to try to do this work alone. We need one another. I need my brothers. I have three other men who are learning to know each other's story and learning to find freedom in Christ. Here I am. I've been following Jesus for 45 years and I'm still barely learning to let the truth of God touch the roots of my soul. So do you think you've arrived? Is your tree completely, like, perfect? (laughs) We need the gospel. All of us need the gospel for all of our lives. And it's, it's together that we discover freedom. Talk to me if you're looking for a few other ladies or a few other men who want to do this this, this freedom work together. We call it DNA. It's, it's glorious. I want to end in a, a prayer. I just want to end in a, a, a question. Would you like to be free? Yes. Would you like to be free? Yes. Amen. No matter how long you may have shown up for church or known Jesus, there are freedom issues in your life. And if you do, I just invite you to pray silently after me. I'm going to pray this exchange prayer. Let's pray together. Father, like the professing believers in John 8, I have lived like a fan of Jesus rather than a follower. I actually can be offended when Jesus implies that I need to be set free. I get grumpy. I know that your truth needs to work its way down into the roots of my soul. So I now reject all lies that assert that Jesus is less than God the Son. I confess the truth that you, Lord Jesus, are who you say you are. The great I am, my only deliverer, the world's only deliverer. I confess that you alone are the way, the truth, and the life. And Father, I also reject all the things that distract me from abiding in your word. In the silence, I invite you to just identify one or two things that distract you from abiding in Jesus and his word. Show me how to make my home in your word this week that I may know your truth and your truth set me free. Father, I thank you that I'm not alone in this. I thank you for those who encourage me to abide in you. Help me to do the same for them. And everyone said, Amen.